This is The Guardian. Liz Truss has just finished giving her first leader's speech at a Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, and she sounded defiant. We have no alternative if we want to get our economy moving again. I'm ready to make the hard choices. She pitched herself as an outsider who's proven her critics wrong in the past. I want what you want. I fought to get where I am today. But after a chaotic week in which she's already been forced into one big U-turn, does she really have the authority to knock a warring cabinet into line? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Pippa Criar, uh, political editor of The Guardian, and Gavin Barwell, the former Conservative MP and former Number 10 Chief of Staff under Theresa May. Hello, both of you. Hi there. Hi. So this was a pretty critical speech for Liz Truss after the week she's had. She needed to show the party she can recover from a rocky start and show voters she gets it. Do you think she got the, the tone right, Pippa? This was a pretty confrontational speech, given what a nervous few days it's been for the country. I think there's various things that Liz Truss needed to do. Obviously, it was reaching out, most importantly, it was reaching out beyond the people in the room to the country to reassure them that she has a grip of her party and that a grip, a grip of the economy and that uh, the next weeks and months are going to be a lot more stable than her first few in power. But key to that was convincing, I think, the people in the room and people who were watching on TV who are actually her own MPs and her own members, because her survival ultimately comes down to them. And I spoke to a few of those afterwards, and they were a bit kind of like, it was okay. She kind of did enough to get through without rocking the markets. There wasn't any sort of massive fallout. Equally, there was no sort of particular um, inspiring vision or big rabbit out the hat policy. She kind of plowed a middle path, a middle way through it all without causing too much more disruption. However, that word disruption is key because while she said that she felt that, uh, you know, having a strong grip on the economy and stable finances was really important, she also said that she recognised that she would have to make more unpopular decisions and that she might have to, to disrupt as well. And that is, I think, exactly the sort of language that the markets and the country more broadly doesn't need to hear right now. They feel she doesn't have the electoral mandate for it. And they don't want the sort of unrest that we've seen economically over the last week when they're worried about mortgage rates and paying their bills. So within the room, she may, they may feel she kind of did what she needed to do. I think actually... Looking beyond that to the country, they would be reassured by what she said. Talking about about disruption and about that question of a mandate, actually, she was heckled early on by um, anti-fracking protesters waving a, a green priest banner saying, who voted for this? Let's get them removed. Do you think she, she handled that interruption OK? Yeah, actually, I think she did it pretty well. I mean, they were right in front of me with their, with their banner. Uh, they actually brought two banners with them. So when um, Tory members ripped the first one out of their hands, they produced another from the bag and started waving it. And she sort of stood on stage and observed the whole thing. And then when they were t- removed by, the two protesters were removed by security, she said, well, you know, I did have a section of this speech, which was about uh, the anti-growth coalition. I think they, they've appeared a bit too early and the whole laughed and the tension now, diffused. Later on in my speech, my friends, I'm going to talk about the anti-growth coalition. But I think, I think, I think they arrived in the hall a bit too early. Uh, they, were meant to, they were meant to come later on. 
she showed herself to be nimble enough to be able to deal with that. And that's obviously a question a lot of people have had about her, whether she's able to be she's able to be flexible enough in her in her sort of rhetoric and her speeches. But crucially, she kind of got the whole on side at that point. So the actual the 600 people or however many it was sitting in that room were shouting out, out, out at the protesters. They, she earned their, their sympathy, really, I suppose, and their support. And they were very much more on her side after that point than they had been for the opening paragraphs. Gavin, did this speech work for you? Did it do what it needed to do? I, I think I'm probably similar to the people Pippa talked with. I thought it was OK. Um, but on the plus side, I thought that she did a good job of getting back to trying to explain fundamentally what she's trying to do. So this argument that the the underlying growth rate of our economy has not been good enough really ever since the global financial crisis. And that's her kind of core priority. She kind of was a little bit of a Blair riff, wasn't there, at one point where she said, my priority is like growth, 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 essentially. Um, but I thought that there were two flaws in it. And one thing that kind of just shocked me a little bit. So the, there wasn't really a lot of contrition about the chaos of the last few weeks. Um, as Pippa said, there was this slightly weird phrase about disruption, which we might come back to and explore a bit more. And then I don't think it actually took us forward at all, Gabby, in terms of what happens next, right? So that she, she repeated this line that she's fiscally responsible and we're going to get debt coming down as a percentage of GDP. But the, the, the gaping question is how? Because these are big unfunded tax cuts. So unless you're going to back down on those, then you're going to reduce public spend. And there are all the arguments we've had this week about what you do on benefits. And so that it didn't, it didn't take us forward at all in terms of how the government is going to square that circle. And then there was one line that I just was going to quote to you, which was kind of jaw-dropping right at the start of the speech, where she said, let's remember where we were when I entered Downing Street. Average energy bills were predicted to soar above 6,000 a year. We faced the highest tax burden that our country has had for 70 years. Kind of sounded like she'd just taken over from Gordon Brown rather than having been in government for the last mm. X. You know, she's She's been in the Johnson government all the way through, in the May government before that, at the end of the Cameron government. So it was a really quite a sort of in-your-face device where she's sort of campaigning almost against the governments that she's been a part of. That brings me perfectly to what um, we wanted to talk about next, really, which is, I mean, the speech was was barely 30 minutes long. It was amazingly light on policy, almost like she didn't want to give anyone anything else to fall out over. But what we did get was a new list of enemies. So after 12 years of Conservatives in power, here is who uh, Liz Truss blamed for the UK's poor economic growth in that time. Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP. The militant unions, the vested interests dressed up as think tanks, the talking heads, the Brexit deniers, Extinction Rebellion, and some of the people we had in the hall earlier. They prefer protesting to doing. They prefer talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions. They taxi from North London townhouses to the BBC studio to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. From broadcast to podcast, they peddle the same old answers. It's always more taxes, more regulation, and more meddling. Wrong, wrong, wrong. But in reality, Gavin, I mean, a lot of that opposition to to growth, if we're thinking about fracking or house building, comes from Tory voters and Tory MPs who don't want development in that, but in their backyards. Something she she didn't acknowledge. Was there anything here that could change their minds? 
But no, because she didn't really make that case in terms of the detail of the kind of planning reform. So look, this is the, this is the area where I have the most sympathy with her, Gabby. If she wants to make a really serious argument about the need for growth in our economy, I am a hundred percent behind her on that. But the points I would gently make to her is a, what you've already said about, um, planning and a lot of the resistance comes from not all of her own colleagues, but some of her own colleagues. And then like, if you're talking about supply side reforms to the UK economy, we could maybe take a look at the barriers to trade that we've put in place with our nearest neighbours. And we could look at the immigration system. So um, if we want to have a proper debate in this country about growth and how we get the growth that we need, as I said, I think she she's alighted on the right problem, whether you're on the centre right or the centre left. Our economy has not been doing well enough really ever since the global financial crisis. We're not alone in that either. Having a serious debate about what to do on that, I'm all in favour of trying to pretend that it's purely caused by some people that go and give interviews on TV criticising her policies is a bit silly. Yeah, I, I, it was a bit odd to blame Brexit deniers as well in that list of uh, list of enemies, given Brexit has been one of the biggest drags on growth. Pippa, did you find that a, a convincing explanation of what's happened for the last 12 years? The government would have loved to, to be getting on with all these decisions, but unfortunately, people in power have stopped them doing it. People not in power, rather, have stopped them doing it. It won't surprise you to hear that I, I don't think that, Gabby. For me, that was very much about trying to find uh, a common enemy um, that her party can rally behind because it is so fractured. And of course, there is she's put growth at the heart of what she wants to do, although I think actually I wonder how many voters sit there, you know, to have a chat with their families over over their tea and say, what do you want for this country? I want growth. I mean, they might want the consequences of growth, but I'm not quite sure that the language is there yet. And um, it, but, but it was also about her recognising, I suppose, that she is heading up a really fractured coalition. I don't just mean within the party, I mean of, of, of the electorate and that she needs to try and find a way. And this is, she's doing it with sort of a populist touch here by having this, this list of you know, the unions and the opposition and so on. But of, of shoring that support up and, and you know, we all, we all know that having a common enemy is a sort of a, a, a long-standing political tool, a political mechanism of, of, of a way of getting, of, um, you know, coalescing your own support. And I just don't think it's going to work, though. It just feels an outdated mechanism. And I'm not sure it, that particular division is what the country wants right now. Well, it works, doesn't it, when it's the voters' common enemy, you know, not just when it's your party's enemy, but when everyone sort of identifies with it. And I'm just thinking, yeah. it's been a really scary few weeks for anyone whose mortgage is going through at the roof at the moment, or people wondering if their universal credit's going to be uprated this autumn. You know, there's, she, there were a lot of people listening to this who've got a, a lot of skin in the game economically. And she did address the, the recent turbulence and we've got a, got a clip of that coming up. We need to step up. As the last few weeks have shown, it will be difficult. Whenever there's change, there is disruption. And not everybody will be in favour of change, but everyone will benefit from the result. A growing economy and a better future. That is what we have a clear plan to deliver. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth and growth. Do you think people sitting at home, you know, kind of listening to this on the six o'clock news are going to be reassured by this speech? Did she do enough to explain how everyone is supposed to be better from better off? Than this? She did talk about some, some very basic bread and butter pledges on, on the NHS, on crime. No, I don't think there was enough on that. I mean, 
uh, Pippa sort of made the point earlier that growth is a kind of abstract concept um, and actually explaining why economic growth is of benefit to working people and how how people are going to see the benefit is really important. And that gets her into slightly difficult territory because she's been kind of trying to argue that we've been focused too much as a country on how we divide up the pie uh, and we should be focused on how we grow it. And again, it's an interesting sort of test of where I have sympathy with her and where I don't. I do think she's right to say that the question of of sort of growing the pie as a whole hasn't had the attention it deserves. But that doesn't mean the government can walk away from the question of distribution. And actually, to, to Pippa's point, if you're trying to convince voters that growth is a good thing, it's about how the proceeds of that growth are shared out, uh, essentially. I mean, lots of voters in Croydon will have said to me when I was knocking on doors in 2015 and 2017, well, you're, you're saying how well the economy's done in the last couple of years, but I'm not seeing it in my living standards. So those questions of distribution, I agree with her, we shouldn't just be focused on distribution, but the government can't walk away from the question of distribution altogether because it ultimately, as Pippa says, that's the, that's the real thing that voters experience in terms of their personal living standards. She dodged the questions in the speech, Pippa, about where spending cuts might might come from. But in the conversations that you've been having during conference with, with ministers, with MPs, are you any clearer about where she might be looking to find savings in November? I think the problem is, is that we don't really know. They talked about efficiency savings, which suggests that every department needs to tighten their belts a bit. One person's efficiency savings or another person's cuts. Welfare, they've mentioned, obviously. We'll come to that later. Um, and ministers haven't either worked out themselves or had sort of instruction, if that's the way these things work, from the Treasury as to where um, where the axe is going to fall. And that you know, that's very unsettling. Um, people, if she's also saying we're going to help you through a really difficult winter, um, she's saying we're going to support the NHS, through which is you know which is already on its knees um, through through a tough few months. But at the same time, we're going to expect efficiencies in some of these departments that do deliver these public services. I mean, it's kind of like a it's trying to fit a square into a round hole. It's going to be I think it's going to be a really tricky uh, task to pull off. The day before uh, she stood up to speak, the, the pollsters Redfield and Wilton um, put out a poll giving Labour a 38 point lead in the, the Red Wall seats that, that famously delivered the 2019 landslide. Did either of you two see a strategy here to get those voters back, particularly? It doesn't feel to me as if she's, you know, she's quite as focused as Johnson was on sort of sp- that specific strata of the vote. The sense, the, the sense that she gives is almost one of I'm going to do what's what I think is right in policy terms and the voters will reward me when I'm proved right, rather than the sort of slightly more brazen Johnson approach of targeting resources in a very laser-like way on the particular constituencies that, you know, it's, it's less partisan in that way, I think, than the Johnson government was. It's, she, she, she's an ideologue. She believes very clearly that the kind of lower tax, low regulation, uh, economy that she believes in is going to deliver higher growth and she's going to get politically rewarded for that. Yeah, and there was sort of, it felt to me there was lip service paid to what she thought the red wall vote represented. So, you know, this is a, I'm going to make a big difference for white van drivers and hairdressers and, you know, people that get up at the crack of dawn and commute to work, as opposed to, you know, North London liberals who get the taxis to the BBC. Um, you know, I mean, 
I don't live in North London, I live in South London, but, um, you know, I get the odd taxi here and there, but I also get up really early in the morning to work and, um, you know, like to think that I put, play, play my part in the country's productivity. And then there was references to, we're going to do levelling up, it's going to be conservative levelling up. And I think actually that's going to be a really interesting one to keep an eye on because I've spoken to her privately, but also she said in this speech about um, investment in areas that aren't currently big growth producers. So not necessarily putting money and infrastructure into places where you could get quick results, but looking at places that maybe are a bit more complicated. And that that kind of seemed a bit more of a thoughtful, uh, a much more thoughtful passage, which I'd like to sort of delve into a bit more in the, in the, in the coming weeks, because it, it kind of is at, at odds with some of the sort of like the scattergun approach of, you know, I'm going to say this because it's red meat to the to the party membership and this because it, it might go down well in certain sections of the electorate. It's hard to remember really so much has happened in that month, but she is only a month in. Is it is it fair to give her a bit more breathing space to develop her ideas, Gammon? I mean, I think politicians earn their breathing space. Um, she, she, the, reason, the reason she's had such a tough time was because the growth plan went out the door without any thought about how it would go down among Conservative MPs or voters. You know, it didn't seem to me there's any stress testing of that at all. I mean, I always say the starting point, Gabby, with, with politics is learning how to count and announcing things that actually you're not going to have enough support among your own party to pass is always a bad idea because you just end up with egg on your face and then you have to, you know, I, Jake, was it Jake Berry earlier in the week who was saying anyone who didn't support the government's policies was going to be, have the whip removed? And it was clearly a completely hollow threat because it was obvious already to all of you reporting on it that there were more than enough in peace who were threatening to do that, that the government would lose its majority if it took the whip away from all the ways. Let's pause there because in a minute we'll be talking about exactly that, whether Liz Truss can take back control of her rebellious party once they get back to Westminster. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man... He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated. He just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock, from The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Welcome back. 
Now, as Parliament resumes, the big challenge facing Truss's government is going to be steadying the markets by producing a spending plan that explains exactly how her tax cuts will be funded. One idea floated this week was not uprating benefits in line with inflation. But here's what Penny Mordaunt, now the leader of the Commons, formerly, of course, Truss's rival for the leadership, had to say about that on Times Radio. I have always supported, uh, whether it's pensions, whether it's uh, our welfare system, uh, keeping pace uh, with inflation, it's, uh, it makes sense uh, to do so. So that's, that's what I've voted for before, and, ha- and so have a lot of my colleagues. But we do need to look at where we can make efficiency savings just because of the cost challenges uh, on those department budgets. Yeah. On the other wing of the party, ditching the cut to the 45p tax rate has upset the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, talking here at conference to The Telegraph's Christopher Hope. So I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed about the subsequent reversal, but I accept their reasons uh, and I'm, you know, doesn't affect my support for the Do you understand the reasons why? I understand the reasons why. Uh, Ultimately, I'm very disappointed that members of our own parliamentary party uh, staged a coup effectively and undermined the authority of the Prime Minister. It's extraordinary to have cabinet ministers arguing in public with their own Prime Minister like this, Pippa. Why are they doing it? Do they think they could do a better job? Because there's no discipline. I mean, We've seen U-turn after U-turn from Liz Truss, both during the campaign and now that she's in power. And the biggest U-turn of all was the 45p top rate of tax one, which, you know, with, we all know the anatomy now of, of how it of how it came about. But it's still really striking that until a few hours before they decided that they were going to drop the pledge, she was still doubling down on it on TV and national television saying, this is what we're going to do. And the truth of it is that, whether it was right or wrong to to U-turn, the, the the effect of it is that her MPs now feel emboldened. Her MPs, who let's face it, most of them aren't on her side, now feel emboldened to push for any changes that they want. And you know, you mentioned benefits. There's um, fracking. There will be many more in the weeks in the weeks and months ahead because they now know that the Prime Minister knows that despite the majority of which I think is about seventy one now. There is um, there is enough there are enough rebels to be able to overturn pretty much anything she wants to do, and that puts them in a very powerful position. And the parliamentary party at large will be running the show. I mean, in the old days, Gavin, you you would have potentially been fired for that sort of disobedience in in cabinet for a breakdown in collective discipline like that. But it's clear that nobody's going to suffer any consequences now. We've heard, as you said, that there's supposedly going to be a, a brutal whipping operation when MPs return to Parliament. I mean, we're all shaking our heads at this point. (laughs) It doesn't feel very plausible. Can you explain, Gavin, for people not familiar with uh, some of the darker arts, what a brutal whipping operation means? So I'm I'm presuming that it means threats that you're going to withdraw the whip if you're going to treat some votes like confidence votes. And if people don't back it, you're going to withdraw the whip and they can't stand as Conservative candidates in the next election. You're going to purge people like Boris Johnson did to Rory Stewart and David Gork. And I mean, there's several things I want to say here. I mean, first of all, the Conservative Party should have learned that the last purge was very bad for it. It deprived it of people of talent and it narrowed the kind of ideological base of the party. And the Prime Minister is now reaping the whirlwind of some of her earlier decisions. Right? She she had a reshuffle where she purged all of the Sunak supporters. So she was already on thin ice because she wasn't the choice of the MPs originally. She then upset a whole load of people uh, further And then she didn't, you know, when you don't have those people in your cabinet and you draw your cabinet 
from a very narrow ideological wing of the party, the risk you run is that actually you miscalculate about what the party will go for and what it won't go for. And she's already learned over the 45p rate that these kind of threats don't work. If MPs work out that enough of them are opposed to something, it's a completely toothless threat. And um, you didn't mention it, Gabby, but we've had another one uh, in the newspapers this morning where someone said, well, if they carry on behaving like this, the prime minister might have to force call an election. To, and they're such an ill-disciplined. Of course, she's not going to call an election. She's going to lose terribly at the moment if she called an election. So these kind of toothless threats don't work. And what you actually need is a grown-up whipping operation that properly assesses where the mood of the parliamentary party is and a proper sense-checking operation in number 10 before stuff goes out the front door, whether that's on what you do about benefits uprating or I think people would probably agree some of the things that are in the growth plan on planning and immigration could be big flashpoints with Conservative MPs. So what they actually need is a sensible whipping operation that does a proper ring round, finds out where the party is, what are things that are going to work and avoid what I think would be fatal, which is another episode of coming out with a policy that then forced a U-turn on because they haven't counted before they did it. Would it help if there was a bit more consultation in advance? I mean, it seems as if most of the cabinet didn't know about the 45p tax rate till it was in the budget. Then half of them didn't know that it was, was you know, being ditched. There's a sense that, that people are flying blind and maybe getting them on side first would help. Yes, there's only indications that Trust gets that. Um, she has said several times now acknowledged that she probably didn't uh, roll the pitch enough in front, ahead of any of these announcements. And that includes both the sort of external stakeholders, uh, but also crucially with her own cabinet and her own party so that they didn't sort of, they weren't taken by surprise. There's also a suggestion from some MPs I've spoken to today that she started, uh, well, number 10 has started having groups or individual MPs in to sort of see where they are. Um, to ask them what their priorities are, take soundings, in some cases to offer them jobs, um, all sorts of things being dangled in front of them, to try, presumably to get them on board and buy them into that sort of that payroll supportive boat. Um, but the sort of overall message that I've taken away from from speaking to to several of those MPs is that the only way that Liz Truss is going to be able to survive is if she genuinely accepts that the parliament, parliamentary party can basically do what it what it wants to do and um if she wants to continue being prime minister she has to avoid those flashpoints she has to avoid doing in the words of uh, one mp to me this morning anything mad and try and get beyond christmas obviously we've got the budget coming up at, at, at that point to the local elections and then then if there's they sort of present a moment a moment where she can say look i'm going to buy myself some time see how I get on in those local elections because what she desperately needs now is time but she can say it isn't just the polls that are saying that Labour is ahead substantially ahead it's actually the electorate and that becomes you know both buys her time but also presents a moment of great peril but I kind of think that's where the focus is now next May's spring elections provides opportunity for her to either you know embed herself for the rest of the term or for the party to get rid of her. That's, of course, if she gets that far. I mean, Grant Shapps was saying this week that she had 10 days to turn this around, although he couldn't explain exactly what would happen after 10 days if, if she didn't. I mean, is there any realistic prospect of the party ousting yet another PM? I mean, they are reaching the point where they're sort of changing leaders as often as they're changing their knickers. I mean, it's not, you can't really, one feels, do it after two weeks. But is there any realistic prospect of it just all coming to an end quite suddenly? And if so, how? Yeah. 
So there's definitely a prospect of it. I mean, there's a lot, people will tell you there's a lot of unhappy Conservative MPs right now. I think that there are two constraints um, mitigating against it. One is the sensible people are worried about what it looks like to the public. Um, could the country really afford another three months of a zombie government while the Conservative Party goes through the rigmarole again? Um, it would be a bit different if the party could arrive at a single sort of candidate for a coronation like they did with Michael Howard in 2003, but that feels unlikely. And then the second constraint, I think, is that if you had a leadership election, you might get Boris Johnson back. Um, and that is going to steady the minds of some MPs. So is it is it possible? Yes, because there's a lot of unhappy MPs. And if, for example, the government doesn't listen on, on benefits and, and you have another policy that they have to force the government into a U-turn on, things could get febrile quite quickly. But there are also reasons why the Conservative Party would be nervous about changing again and how that would look to the public. I mean, one of those reasons would be a pressure for a huge pressure for a general election at that point, wouldn't it, Pippa? Which is the last thing, presumably, looking at the polls, a lot of MPs want right now. Well, and crucially, Gabby, it was the last thing I think that the Prime Minister wants right now. Uh, you know, she'd have to be forced into a really tight corner to take that route, uh, given where the polls stand. No, I was thinking more of if she was ousted and replaced by someone else, then that new leader would need to seek a new mandate. Yeah, but then there is, you're absolutely right, but then there is also that, it's also about the timing, and, and say she does get through to next spring, and those local elections are bad, and her party gets rid of her, I mean, there's all sorts of hypotheticals going on here, but don't forget, that is potentially a year from a general election, so you can see a world in where a new leader comes in and says, I'm the new leader, we're going to hold an election this time next year and and buys themselves that year, which inevitably then becomes a de facto election campaign. And that is a whole other world of, of, uh, of pain. Um, but you can see a world where they don't have to hold a snap general election. They could hold one when one is due anyway. They just have to pledge to do it. But I think we're, you know, we're kind of getting four steps ahead of ourselves here. Um, we, we've been a, had a very febrile week in Birmingham. It's not going to be easy when she gets back to Westminster either. But I still don't think, despite all the sounds, the sort of noises off, that the party is yet ready to take the risk, and it would be a risk, of sort of ripping it all up once again and going for a new leader. That makes absolute sense. But what struck me this week, actually, is... I mean, in the past, what's, what's kept the Tory right in sort of, you know, so dominant is that the moderate MPs often weren't so organised. You know, the ERG is to organise everyone else out of the park and the moderates would sort of trail along behind going, I don't know what happens here. But it, it, it felt like that's changed this week. I mean, Michael Gove, Grant Chaps, they are behaving in a much more organised, orchestrated fashion. Do you think they've learned something from watching Labour MPs try and fail to get rid of, of Jeremy Corbyn, Gavin? Because that's what it feels like. I don't know if there's lessons from that, but I mean, when you've got people like Julian Smith and Mel Stride going public, they're not natural rebels. And I think it it speaks to the strength of feeling across the party. And I just, I was wanting to pick up on something that Pippa said earlier, you know, the the Prime Minister acknowledging she didn't roll the pitch right on the 45p. That, that speaks to thinking it was a comms problem. It wasn't a comms problem. It really was not a comms problem. The problem was the actual policy. Right. And the combined effect of the tax changes that the government was going to be bringing in over the next few years were going to mean anyone under earning under £155,000 a year would be worse off. And only those earning more than that would be better off. And that is just morally indefensible in a cost of living crisis. So it worries me when I hear people sort of saying, oh, we didn't get the comms right, because it, it speaks to not understanding what the problem was, which was that the policy was unacceptable. And I say that as someone who... I'm a conservative. Other things being equal, I want to see lower marginal rates of tax. 
But you have to recognise the circumstances the country's in. And you know, I, I watched that, well, growth plan statement, not so many budget, whatever you want to call it, but I watched it with a bunch of people that I work with at PwC, many of whom would have benefited from what was being announced. And all of them were deeply, deeply uncomfortable and didn't want the government giving them money. They, they don't need, you know, they wanted the government to help the people that need help. That's pretty stark. I mean, you had Shell saying much the same thing today, you know, can you please impose a higher windfall tax yeah. on us? Do you, I mean, a, a prime minister in this much trouble would often contemplate a reshuffle, you know, are people in the right jobs? But it seems a bit mad to think about that with this one. You know, they've only been in those jobs for, for five minutes. Is this terminal? now for Liz Truss? I mean, is, is this it for the Conservatives? Are they bound to lose the next election now, do you think, Pepper? It does feel very much like we're in the end game as part of this sort of, you know, overall political cycle, electoral cycle, that this is the beginning of the end for the Conservatives. But I just always remember that, you know, to this time two years ago, Boris Johnson was like king of British politics. He was you know, king of all he surveyed, he just won a massive majority and his party was mostly united and he, you know, he got rid of the rebels and he looked like he was going to be in power. And certainly he said he was going to be in power until the 2030s. And fast forward two years and so much has happened, lots of it domestically, but also, you know, we've had the pandemic, we've had Ukraine. And there's just a bit of me that thinks, yes, things are really bad right now. And MPs say to me, you know, Liz Truss is singing the wrong tune. This is not what public needs right now. They want reassurance and she's offering disruption. But two years or 18 months, whenever the next election ends up being, is still quite a long way away. And, you know, one thing we've all learned in the last couple of years is that while life comes at you fast, politics comes at you faster. And we just, there's no guarantees. So yes, it feels like it's the end game for the Conservatives, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't start popping the champagne corks if you're a Labour supporter just yet. So I'm going to say something that, you know, an MP couldn't say, um, which is, I, I think it was, I think it was always going to be difficult for the Conservative Party to win the next election. You know, they've been in power for a long time. They had some unique advantages last time around Corbyn, um, around Brexit and sort of unlocking the deadlock. The important thing for the Conservative Party is not to get obliterated like it did in 1997, right? So of course you try and win, but what the party should be thinking about is we need to make sure that we maximise the number of MPs that we get in Parliament. And if we don't win, we're still a very significant presence and can bounce back quickly. And what would worry me about what we've seen over the last 10 days is that the polls are now pointing to a much more sort of fundamental transition at, at the next election. Um, I saw John Curtis saying that actually there was a bigger switch over the last week directly to Labour than happened after... Um, that Wednesday, right? And so that's a, that's a quite dramatic thing. And that I think in terms of Pippa talking about how conservative people will reflect over time, they'll want to see, was that a blip after a bad couple of weeks and actually the polls close a bit and they're still behind, but not too bad? Or is that kind of embedded and entrenched? And are, are they on course for a very heavy defeat if they stick with where they were? And I think that will ultimately be what determines how this plays out. And we'll be here to uh, talk you all through it over the next few weeks. Thank you so much to both of you. If you want more analysis on Liz Truss, The Guardian's Today in Focus podcast will be speaking to Raphael Baer for their episode on Thursday. I'm with you again on this podcast next week. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Maz Ettehaj and Nicole Jackson. See you next Thursday.
This is The Guardian.